Part B of Chapter Six of An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. An Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation by Jeremy Bentham. Chapter Six, Part B. Twenty-three. Thus much for the circumstances by which the effect of any exciting cause may be influenced, when applied upon any given occasion, at any given period. But besides these supervening incidents, there are other circumstances relative to a man that may have their influence, and which are coeval to his birth. In the first place, it seems to be universally agreed that in the original frame or texture of every man's body, there is something which, independently, of all subsequently intervening circumstances, renders him liable to be affected by causes producing bodily pleasure or pain, in a manner different from that in which another man would be affected by the same causes. To the catalogue of circumstances influencing a man's sensibility, we may therefore add his original or radical frame, texture, constitution, or temperament of body. 24. In the next place, it seems to be pretty well agreed that there is something also in the original frame or texture of every man's mind, which, independently of all exterior and subsequently intervening circumstances, and even of his radical frame of body, makes him liable to be differently affected by the same exciting causes, from what another man would be. To the catalogue of circumstances influencing a man's sensibility, we may therefore further add his original or radical frame, texture, constitution, or temperament of mind. Footnote. The characteristic circumstances, whereby one man's frame of body or mind, considered at any given period, stands distinguished from that of another, have been comprised by metaphysicians and physiologists under the name of idiosyncrasy, from idios, peculiar, and syncrasis, composition. End footnote. It seems pretty certain, all this while, that a man's sensibility to causes producing pleasure or pain, even of mind, may depend, in a considerable degree, upon his original and acquired frame of body. But we have no reason to think that it can depend altogether upon that frame, since, on the one hand, we see persons whose frame of body is as much alike as can be conceived, differing very considerably in respect of their mental frame, and, on the other hand, persons whose frame of mind is as much alike as can be conceived, differing very conspicuously in regard to their bodily frame. Footnote. Those who maintain that the mind and the body are one substance may here object that upon that supposition the distinction between frame of mind and frame of body is but nominal, and that accordingly there is no such thing as a frame of mind distinct from the frame of body. But granting, for argument's sake, the antecedent, we may dispute the consequence, for if the mind be but a part of the body, it is at any rate of a nature very different from the other part of the body. A man's frame of body cannot in any part of it undergo any considerable alteration without its being immediately indicated by phenomena discernible by the senses. A man's frame of mind may undergo very considerable alterations, his frame of body remaining the same to all appearance, that is, for anything that is indicated to the contrary by phenomena cognizable to the senses, 
meaning those of other men. End footnote. It seems indisputable also that the different sets of external occurrences that may befall a man in the course of his life will make great differences in the subsequent texture of his mind at any given period, yet still those differences are not solely to be attributed to such occurrences. Equally far from the truth seems that opinion to be, if any such be maintained, which attributes all to nature, and that which attributes all to education. The two circumstances will therefore still remain distinct, as well from one another, as from all others. Distinct, however, as they are, it is manifest that at no period in the active part of a man's life can they either of them make their appearance by themselves. All they do is to constitute the latent groundwork which the other supervening circumstances have to work upon, and whatever influence those original principles may have is so changed and modified and covered over, as it were, by those other circumstances, as never to be separately discernible. The effects of the one influence are indistinguishably blended with those of the other. The emotions of the body are received, and with reason, as probable indications of the temperature of the mind, but they are far enough from conclusive. A man may exhibit, for instance, the exterior appearances of grief, without really grieving at all, or at least in anything near the proportion in which he appears to grieve. Oliver Cromwell, whose conduct indicated a heart more than ordinarily callous, was as remarkably profuse in tears. Footnote, Hume's Histories, and footnote. Many men can command the external appearances of sensibility with very little real feeling. Footnote. The quantity of the sort of pain which is called grief is indeed hardly to be measured by any external indications. It is neither to be measured, for instance, by the quantity of the tears, nor by the number of moments spent in crying. Indications rather less equivocal may, perhaps, be afforded by the pulse. A man has not the motions of his heart at command, as he has those of the muscles of his face. But the particular significancy of these indications is still very uncertain. All they can express is that the man is affected. They cannot express in what manner, nor from what cause. To an affection resulting in reality from such or such a cause, he may give an artificial colouring, and attribute it to such or such another cause. To an affection directed in reality to such or such a person as its object, he may give an artificial bias, and represent it as if directed to such or such another object. Tears of rage he may attribute to contrition. The concern he feels at the thoughts of a punishment that awails him, he may impute to a sympathetic concern for the mischief produced by his offence. A very tolerable judgment, however, may commonly be formed by a discerning mind upon laying all the external indications exhibited by a man together, and at the same time comparing them with his actions. A remarkable instance of the power of the will over the external indications of sensibility is to be found in Tacitus's story of the Roman soldier who raised a mutiny in the camp, pretending to have lost a brother by the lawless cruelty of the general. The truth was, he never had had a brother. End footnote. The female sex, commonly with greater facility than the male. Hence, the proverbial expression of a woman's tears. To have this kind of command over oneself was the characteristic excellence of the orator of ancient times, and is still that of the player in our own. The remaining circumstances may, 
with reference to those already mentioned, be termed secondary influencing circumstances. These have an influence, it is true, on the quantum or bias of a man's sensibility, but it is only by means of the other primary ones. The matter in which these two sets of circumstances are concerned is such that the primary ones do the business, while the secondary ones lie most open to observation. The secondary ones, therefore, are those which are most heard of, and which account it will be necessary to take notice of them, at the same time that it is only by means of the primary ones that their influence can be explained, whereas the influence of the primary ones will be apparent enough without any mention of the secondary ones. 25. Among such of the primitive modifications of the corporeal frame as may appear to influence the quantum and bias of sensibility, the most obvious and conspicuous are those which constitute the sex. In point of quantity, the sensibility of the female sex appears in general to be greater than that of the male. The health of the female is more delicate than that of the male. In point of strength and hardiness of body, in point of quantity and quality of knowledge, in point of strength of intellectual powers and firmness of mind, she is commonly inferior. Moral, religious, sympathetic, and antipathetic sensibility are commonly stronger in her than in the male. The quality of her knowledge and the bent of her inclinations are commonly in many respects different. Her moral biases are also, in certain respects, remarkably different. Chastity, modesty, and delicacy, for instance, are prized more than courage in a woman. Courage, more than any of those qualities, in a man. The religious biases in the two sexes are not apt to be remarkably different, except that the female is rather more inclined than the male to superstition, that is, to observances not dictated by the principle of utility, a difference that may be pretty well accounted for by some of the before-mentioned circumstances. Her sympathetic biases are in many respects different for her own offspring all their lives long, and for children in general while young. Her affection is commonly stronger than that of the male. Her affections are apt to be less enlarged, seldom expanding themselves so much as to take in the welfare of her country in general, much less that of mankind, or the whole sensitive creation, seldom embracing any extensive class or division, even of her own countrymen, unless it be in virtue of her sympathy for some particular individuals that belong to it. In general, her antipathetic as well as sympathetic biases are apt to be less comfortable to the principle of utility than those of the male, owing chiefly to some deficiency in point of knowledge, discernment, and comprehension. Her habitual occupations of the amusing kind are apt to be in many respects different from those of the male. With regard to her connections in the way of sympathy, there can be no difference. In point of pecuniary circumstances, according to the customs of perhaps all countries, she is in general less independent. 26. Ages, of course, divided into diverse periods, of which the number and limits are by no means uniformly ascertained. One might distinguish it for the present purpose into 1. Infancy, 2. Adolescence, 3. Youth, 4. Maturity, 5. Decline, 6. Decrepitude. 
it were lost time to stop on the present occasion to examine it at each period, and to observe the indications it gives, with respect to the several primary circumstances just reviewed. Infancy and decrepitude are commonly inferior to the other periods, in point of health, strength, hardiness, and so forth. In infancy, on the part of the female, the imperfections of that sex are enhanced. On the part of the male, imperfections take place mostly similar in quality, but greater in quantity, to those attending the states of adolescence, youth, and maturity in the female. In the stage of decrepitude, both sexes relapse into many of the imperfections of infancy. The generality of these observations may easily be corrected upon a particular review. 27. Station, or rank in life, is a circumstance that, among a civilized people, will commonly undergo a multiplicity of variations. Caeteris paribus, the quantum of sensibility, appears to be greater in higher ranks of men than in the lower. The primary circumstances, in respect of which this secondary circumstance is apt to induce or indicate a difference, seem principally to be as follows. 1. Quantity and quality of knowledge. 2. Strength of mind. 3. Bent of inclination. 4. Moral sensibility. 5. Moral biases. 6. Religious sensibility. 7. Religious biases. 8. Sympathetic sensibility. 9. Sympathetic biases. 10. Antipathetic sensibility. 11. Antipathetic biases. 12. Habitual occupations. 13. Nature and productiveness of a man's means of livelihood. 14. Connections importing profit. 15. Habits of expense. 16. Connections importing burden. A man of a certain rank will frequently have a number of dependents besides those whose dependency is the result of natural relationship. As to health, strength, and hardiness, if rank has any influence on these circumstances, it is, but in a remote way, chiefly by the influence it may have on its habitual occupations. 28. The influence of education is still more extensive. Education stands upon a footing somewhat different from that of the circumstances of age, sex, and rank. These words, though the influence of the circumstances they respectively denote, exerts itself principally, if not entirely, through the medium of certain of the primary circumstances before mentioned. Present, however, each of them a circumstance which has a separate existence of itself. This is not the case with the word education, which means nothing any further than as it serves to call up to view some one or more of those primary circumstances. Education may be distinguished into physical and mental, the education of the body and that of the mind, mental again into intellectual and moral, the culture of the understanding and the culture of the affections. The education a man receives is given to him partly by others, partly by himself. By education, then, nothing more can be expressed than the condition a man is in respect of those primary circumstances, as resulting partly from the management and contrivance of others, principally of those who, in the early periods of his life, have had dominion over him, partly from his own. To the principal part of his education belong the circumstances of health, strength, and hardiness, sometimes by accident, that of bodily imperfection, 
as where by intemperance or negligence an irreparable mischief happens to his person. To the intellectual part, those of quantity and quality of knowledge, and in some measure perhaps those of firmness of mind and steadiness. To the moral part, the bent of his inclinations, the quantity and quality of his moral, religious, sympathetic and antipathetic sensibility, to all three branches indiscriminately, but under the superior control of external occurrences, his habitual recreations, his property, his means of livelihood, his connections in the way of profit and of burden, and his habits of expense. With respect, indeed, to all these points, the influence of education is modified, in a manner more or less apparent, by that of exterior occurrences, and in a manner scarcely at all apparent, and altogether out of the reach of calculation, by the original texture and constitution, as well of his body as of his mind. 29. Among the external circumstances by which the influence of education is modified, the principal are those which come under the head of climate. This circumstance places itself in front and demands a separate denomination, not merely on account of the magnitude of its influence, but also on account of its being conspicuous to everybody, and of its applying indiscriminately to great numbers at a time. This circumstance depends for its essence upon the situation of that part of the earth which is in question, with respect to the course taken by the whole planet in its revolution round the sun. But for its influence it depends upon the condition of the bodies which compose the earth's surface at that part, principally upon the quantities of sensible heat at different periods, and upon the density and purity and dryness or moisture of the circumambient air. Of the so often mentioned primary circumstances, there are few of which the production is not introduced by this secondary one, partly by its manifest effects upon the body, partly by its less perceptible effects upon the mind. In hot climates, men's health is apt to be more precarious than in cold, their strength and hardness less, their vigor, firmness and steadiness of mind less, and thence, indirectly, their quantity of knowledge. The bent of their inclinations is different most remarkably so in respect of their superior propensity to sexual enjoyments, and in respect of the earliness of the period at which that propensity begins to manifest itself, their sensibilities of all kinds more intense, their habitual occupations savouring more of sloth than of activity, their radical frame of body less strong, probably, and less hardy, their radical frame of mind, less vigorous, less firm, less steady. 30. Another article in the catalogue of secondary circumstances is that of race or lineage. The national race or lineage a man issues from. This circumstance, independently of that of climate, will commonly make some difference in point of radical frame of mind and body. A man of negro race, born in France or England, is a very different being, in many respects, from a man of French or English race. A man of Spanish race, born in Mexico or Peru, is at the hour of his birth a different sort of being, in many respects, from a man of the original Mexican or Peruvian race. This circumstance, as far as it is distinct from climate, rank, and education, 
and from the two just mentioned, operates chiefly through the medium of moral, religious, sympathetic, and antipathetic biases. 31. The last circumstance about one is that of government, the government a man lives under, at the time in question, or rather that under which he has been accustomed most to live. This circumstance operates principally through the medium of education, the magistrate operating in the character of a tutor upon all the members of the state, by the direction he gives to their hopes and to their fears. Indeed, under a solicitous and attentive government, the ordinary preceptor, nay, even the parent himself, is but a deputy, as it were, to the magistrate, whose controlling influence, different in this respect from that of the ordinary preceptor, dwells with a man to his life's end. This effect of the peculiar power of the magistrate are seen more particularly in the influence it exerts over the quantity and bias of men's moral, religious, sympathetic, and antipathetic sensibilities. Under a well-constituted, or even under a well-administered, though ill-constituted government, men's moral sensibility is commonly stronger, and their moral biases more conformable to the dictates of utility. Their religious sensibility frequently weaker, but their religious biases less unconformable to the dictates of utility. Their sympathetic affections more enlarged, directed to the magistrate more than to small parties or to individuals, and more to the whole community than to either. Their antipathetic sensibilities less violent, and being more obsequious to the influence of well-directed moral biases, and less apt to be excited by that of ill-directed religious ones, their antipathetic biases more conformable to well-directed moral ones, more apt in proportion to be grounded on enlarged and sympathetic than on narrow and self-regarding affections, and accordingly, upon the whole, more conformable to the dictates of utility. 32. The last circumstance is that of religious profession. The religious profession a man is of, the religious fraternity of which he is a member. This circumstance operates principally through the medium of religious sensibility and religious biases. It operates, however, as an indication more or less conclusive with respect to several other circumstances. With respect to some, scarcely but through the medium of the two just mentioned. This is the case with regard to the quantum and bias of a man's moral, sympathetic, and antipathetic sensibility. Perhaps, in some cases, with regard to quantity and quality of knowledge, strength of intellectual powers, and bent of inclination. With respect to others, it may operate immediately of itself. This seems to be the case with regard to a man's habitual occupations, pecuniary circumstances, and connections in the way of sympathy and antipathy. A man who pays very little inward regard to the dictates of the religion which he finds it necessary to profess, may find it difficult to avoid joining in the ceremonies of it, and bearing a part in the pecuniary burdens it imposes. Footnote. The way in which a religion may lessen a man's means or augment his wants are various. Sometimes it will prevent him from making a profit of his money, sometimes from setting his hand to labor, sometimes it will oblige him to buy dearer food instead of cheaper, sometimes to purchase useless labor, sometimes to pay men for not laboring, sometimes to purchase trinkets, on which imagination alone has set a value, 
sometimes to purchase exemptions from punishment or titles to felicity in the world to come. End footnote. By the force of habit and example, he may even be led to entertain a partiality for persons of the same profession, and a proportionate antipathy against those of a rival one. In particular, the antipathy against persons of different persuasions is one of the last points of religion which men part with. Lastly, it is obvious that the religious profession a man is of cannot but have a considerable influence on his education. But, considering the import of the term education, to say this is perhaps no more than saying, in other words, what has been said already. These circumstances, all or many of them, will tend to be attended to as often as upon any occasion any account is taken of any quantity of pain or pleasure, as resulting from any cause. Has any person sustained an injury? They will need to be considered in estimating the mischief of the offence. Is satisfaction to be made to him? They will need to be attended to in adjusting the quantum of that satisfaction. Is the injurer to be punished? They will need to be attended to in estimating the force of the impression that will be made on him by any given punishment. It is to be observed that though they seem all of them, on some account or other, to merit a place in the catalogue, they are not all of equal use in practice. Different articles among them are applicable to different exciting causes. Of those that may influence the effect of the same exciting cause, some apply indiscriminately to whole classes of persons together, being applicable to all, without any remarkable difference in degree. These may be directly and pretty fully provided for by the legislator. This is the case, for instance, with the primary circumstances of bodily imperfection, and insanity, with the second circumstance, of sex, perhaps with that of age, at any rate with those of rank, of climate, of lineage, and of religious profession. Others, however, they may apply to whole classes of persons, yet in their application to different individuals are susceptible of perhaps an indefinite variety of degrees. These cannot be fully provided for by the legislator, but, as the existence of them, in every sort of case, is capable of being ascertained, and the degree in which they take place is capable of being measured, provision may be made for them by the judge, or other executive magistrate, to whom the several individuals that happen to be concerned may be made known. This is the case, one, with circumstance of health, two, in some sort with that of strength, three, scarcely with that of hardiness, still less with those of quantity and quality of knowledge, strength of intellectual powers, firmness or steadiness of mind, except in as far as a man's condition, in respect to those circumstances, may be indicated by the secondary circumstances of sex, age, or rank, hardly with that of bent of inclination, except in as far as that latent circumstance is indicated by the more manifest one of habitual occupations, hardly with that of a man's moral sensibility or biases, except in as far as they may be indicated by his sex, age, rank, and education. Not at all with his religious sensibility and religious biases, except in as far as they may be indicated by the religious profession he belongs to. Not at all with the quantity or quality of his sympathetic or antipathetic sensibilities, 
except in as far as they may be presumed from his sex, age, rank, education, lineage, or religious profession. It is the case, however, with his habitual occupations, with his pecuniary circumstances, and with his connections in the way of sympathy. Of others, again, either the existence cannot be ascertained, or the degree cannot be measured. These, therefore, cannot be taken into account, either by the legislator or the executive magistrate. Accordingly, they would have no claim to be taken notice of, were it not for those secondary circumstances by which they were indicated, and whose influence could not well be understood without them. What these are has been already mentioned. It has already been observed that different articles in this list of circumstances apply to different exciting causes. The circumstance of bodily strength, for instance, has scarcely any influence of itself, whatever it may have in a roundabout way and by accident, on the effect of an incident which should increase or diminish the quantum of a man's property. It remains to be considered what the exciting causes are with which the legislator has to do. These may, by some accident or other, be any whatsoever, but those which he has principally to do are those of the painful or afflictive kind. With pleasurable ones he has little to do, except now and then by accident, the reasons of which may be easily enough perceived, at the same time that it would take up too much room to unfold them here. The exciting causes with which he has principally to do are, on the one hand, the mischievous acts, which it is his business to prevent, on the other hand, the punishments, by the terror of which it is his endeavour to prevent them. Now, of these two sets of exciting causes, the latter only is of his production, being produced partly by his own special appointment, partly in conformity to his general appointment, by the special appointment of the judge. For the legislator, therefore, as well as for the judge, it is necessary, if they would know what it is they are doing when they are appointing punishment, to have an eye to all these circumstances. For the legislator, lest, meaning to apply a certain quantity of punishment to all persons who shall put themselves in a given predicament, he should unawares apply to some of those persons much more or much less than he himself intended. For the judge, lest, in applying to a particular person a particular measure of punishment, he should apply much more or much less than was intended, perhaps by himself, and at any rate by the legislature. They ought, each of them, therefore, to have before him, on the one hand, a list of the several circumstances by which sensibility may be influenced, on the other hand, a list of the several species and degrees of punishment which they purpose to make use of, and then, by making a comparison between the two, to form a detailed estimate of the influence of each of the circumstances in question, upon the effect of each species and degree of punishment. There are two plans or orders of distribution, either of which might be pursued in the drawing up this estimate. This one is to make the name of the circumstance take the lead, and under it to represent the different influences it exerts over the effects of the several modes of punishment. The other is to make the name of the punishment take the lead, and under it to represent the different influences which are exerted over the effects of it by the several circumstances above mentioned. Now of these two sorts of objects, the punishment 
is that to which the intention of the legislator is directed in the first instance. This is of his own creation, and will be whatsoever he thinks fit to make it. The influencing circumstance exists independently of him, and is what it is whether he will or not. What he has occasion to do is to establish a certain species and degree of punishment, and it is only with reference to that punishment that he has occasion to make any inquiry concerning any of the circumstances here in question. The latter of the two plans, therefore, is that which appears by far the most useful and commodious. But neither upon the one nor the other plan can any such estimate be delivered here. Footnote. This is far from being a visionary proposal, not reducible to practice. I speak from experience, having actually drawn up such an estimate, though upon the least commodious of the two plans, and before the several circumstances in question, had been reduced to the precise number and order in which they are here enumerated. This is a part of the matter distance for another work. There are some of these circumstances that bestow particular denominations on the persons they relate to. Thus, from the circumstance of bodily imperfections, persons are denominated deaf, dumb, blind, and so forth. From the circumstance of insanity, idiots, and maniacs. From the circumstance of age, infants. For all which classes of persons particular provisions is made in the code. See Book One, Title Exemptions. Persons thus distinguished will form so many articles in the Catalogus Personarum Privilegiatarum. See Appendix, Title Composition. End footnote. Of the several circumstances contained in this catalogue, it may be of use to give some sort of analytic view, in order that it may be the more easily discovered if any which ought to have been inserted are omitted, and that, with regard to those which are inserted, it may be seen how they differ and agree. In the first place, they may be distinguished into primary and secondary. Those may be termed primary, which operate immediately of themselves, those secondary, which operate not but by the medium of the former. To this latter head belong the circumstances of sex, age, station in life, education, climate, lineage, government, and religious profession. The rest are primary. These, again, are either conate or adventitious. Those which are conate are radical frame of body and radical frame of mind. Those which are adventitious are either personal or exterior. The personal, again, concern either a man's dispositions or his actions. Those which concern his dispositions concern either his body or his mind. Those which concern his body are health, strength, hardiness, and bodily imperfection. Those which concern his mind, again, concern either his understanding or his affections. To the former head belong the circumstances of quantity and quality of knowledge, strength of understanding, and insanity. To the latter belong the circumstances of firmness of mind, steadiness, bent of inclination, moral sensibility, moral biases, religious sensibility, religious biases, sympathetic sensibility, sympathetic biases, antipathetic sensibility, and antipathetic biases. Those which regard his actions are his habitual occupations. Those which are exterior to him regard either the things or the persons which he is concerned with. Under the former head come his pecuniary circumstances. Footnote. 
As to a man's pecuniary circumstances, the causes on which those circumstances depend do not come all of them under the same class. The absolute quantum of a man's property does indeed come under the same class as with his pecuniary circumstances in general. So does the profit he makes from the occupation which furnishes him with the means of a livelihood. But the occupation itself concerns his own person, and comes under the same head as his habitual amusements, as likewise his habits of expense, his connections in the ways of profit and of burden, under the same head as his connections in the way of sympathy, and the circumstances of his present demand for money and strength of expectation come under the head of those circumstances relative to his person which regard his affections, and footnote. Under the latter, his connections in the way of sympathy and antipathy. End of chapter 6